0: Hi everyone, this is Amanda, and not Rita today, because Rita took a much-deserved vacation to her hometown, which she hadn't been to in many years, and it is Mother's Day weekend, so we decided to let her off the hook. So instead, today I am joined with a special guest. I am here today with Mary Cronk Farrell. Mary is the author of eight books, I believe, is that correct? Centered on the stories of women in history whose names haven't been known well enough or perhaps have been forgotten over time, which makes her a perfect guest for I Don't Know Her, the podcast about women you've probably never heard of, but you should have. Mary has won a number of awards and honors for her writing, including the Eureka Children's Book Award for Excellence in Nonfiction, nominations for the Washington State Book Award, The Spur Award for Best Juvenile Fiction about the American West, and her books have been featured on a number of lists, including the New York Times, or sorry, the New York Public Library's Best Book for Teens. And I thought this was personally fascinating. Prior to being an author, Mary worked as a TV news journalist, garnering two Emmy nominations. And we are very honored to have you here. So
1: welcome, Mary. Thank
0: you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I am very honored, Amanda, to be here. <laughs> well,
0: I, I really can't stress enough how exciting it is to have an author of your stature come talk to us about your work and also about these women's stories.
1: Well, I love to talk about these women. You can. Ha- you you might have to cut me off at some point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I. You know what? I would love to have extra material. We'll put it up as a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. So I wanted to start off with talking a little bit about your mission. I was reading your website and I was struck by how close what you said, like the reason you write about these stories, it's so close to what we do and why we do it. So I'd love for you to share with our audience a little bit about why you write the kinds of books you do.
1: Mostly, I guess, I guess, I would say I I write them because I have to. <laughs> they when I just most of these women that I've written about, I have stumbled across on the internet. And I have thought, why have I never heard of this woman before or these women? And I think it's so important. We're missing so much of history mm-hmm. because we do not have women's. Uh, voices and other marginalized voices and i think that if we i mean i think we have a lot we can learn from women of the past mm-hmm. that there ha- are women who have been through incredible hardship and have prevailed and they're I just think that we, we have a lot of the same issues, unfortunately, today yes. that they have faced. It's like these issues have not gone away. And so- hardly even changed sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's sad, but true.
0: Yeah, I've, I've found that to be true in our research, too, is that like the closer I get to some of the stories, I'm like, why is this still the same Why haven't we been able to conquer this problem that this woman set out to conquer 50, 100 years ago? It's an incredible... I I think, for me, it's like that idea that that history repeats itself being so real in a way (laughs) that I really wish wasn't true.
1: Right. Well, and that's one of the reasons I write for kids is because I think... I personally think that history is such a key to I mean you can't understand where you are mm-hmm. unless you know where you've come from and history is such a key to making decisions about how to move forward in the future. I mean there's so much wisdom in the in the history in in the past in women's lives and I think that young people possibly are more open to being exposed to new Things that they haven't seen and heard before.
0: Yeah, that was actually when I was. What I was, uh, the next thing I was going to ask you about was writing for children's uh, children and young adults. What made you decide to do that besides the um, wanting to teach history? What What drew you to that audience and that specific writing style? Because it is a little different than it, writing for adults.
1: It is. I think probably two main things, and the first is that when I was. A teen and a preteen books were so important to me and such a huge part of my life. I mean, not just for fun. I mean, they offered something that I couldn't get anywhere else. Hmm. This idea that I could read a book and think, okay, there is someone else who feels like I do. Yes. There is someone else who thinks these thoughts that I think. I'm not alone. And then um, I wrote for adults for a number of years. But the thing, I, what I believe about kids is, first of all, they demand the truth. Mm. Um, And they know when they hear it, whether it's the truth. And... They are also, um, like, a lot of people might tend to think that kids' books are not as well written as adult books. And that is so far from the truth. Agreed. Because for one reason, to keep a kid's attention with all the other options that they have, you need to really pull them in. And tell them something that they find valuable, interesting, whatever it is. So they're just a tough customer. <laughs> and I guess I, I feel like that that I'm doing really quality work for for individuals, teens that that will really take seriously what they read. Yeah. And be open to what they read. I think there's also... I I was
0: reading um, a, a biography of Fanny Bryce, who I talked about a couple weeks ago on the show. And the biography was written by an adult man. And it was awful. I hated, I hated that book. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with filler. I mean, it was just... I mean, if I wanted a a playbill for every single performance that woman did in her life, I would seek that out. But what I want in a biography is a story. Right, right. And it was like, you do not have an editor, do you? <laughs> and you could never get away with that in Young Adult Lit because they will just put that book right away. It'll just go on the shelf and it'll never get read because you need to keep their attention. You need to be able to tell a story and not get bogged down in the details and pump it full of filler, which is what that felt like.
1: And I think, it well, and you would know this more than me, even, it needs to be relevant. Mm -hmm. It really needs to be relevant. And so with history, you might think that's a double job, making history relevant. But I think, I guess that's what I love doing. Awesome.
0: I, I uh, applaud that because I personally, uh, as a history podcast, it's exactly what we're trying to do is make history accessible and feel relevant to today. One of the questions that we get asked a lot, and you kind of touched on it, but I'd like to hear more about it. We get asked all the time about how we come up with the women that we talk about on the show. So I want to throw that back at you because I'm very excited to hear what somebody else has to say about how do you decide who to talk about?
1: Well... I besides the books I've written about women, I also have a blog and a newsletter that I write, and I write about women every week on my in my newsletter and on my blog. And these are women that I'd love to write books about if I could write a hundred books a day. <laughs> but the one thing that continually amazes me is I've been writing my blog now for over ten years, and. I thought early on, and I think practically every month since then, that I will run out of women that (laughs) stories that have great stories. Yeah, I I just can't even believe how I keep finding them. Um, So I guess with the internet, everything is so all the information there's it's so accessible and. Most of these women that I've, I have not gone seeking out any of them. I have discovered them while looking for something else. Hmm. And I do notice over recently that the internet, that there has been, change in the type of information that you find, you I find that I have to dig a lot more because a lot when I stumble across a woman, a lot of the information will just be cut and pasted from repetitive ten other sources. Oh, I know. And so it's a little harder work than it used to be to to actually write you know find the facts to write the story but i also have discovered a few in the in the library just in the biography section of the yeah. library you know i actually um I,
0: I know as a librarian i and a writer i probably shouldn't love it but i love archive.org um i don't know if you know about archive but it is this free internet library where they you know people take like books that have been deleted from a library and they scan them and put them online. And I know that there's lots of issues with that in terms of artists getting their pay and their due. Um, But there are lots of books that are just no longer in print. You couldn't get them if you wanted to, you couldn't pay that artist if you wanted to. And I found some really cool collective biographies and found women's names in the, in the, you know, in the table of contents that I'm like, this is amazing. I've my list From one book alone, my list went from, I have like a a list of like 170 women I want to talk about on the show. (laughs) And it went from 170 to like 200 from one book because there were so many women in this this one book that had never come across my table before. So if you haven't done that, I would recommend it because it's great. And I also like then will find whole biographies on those women sometimes on archive.org that were written, you know, 60 years ago and I'll read the whole thing and it's online and it's great, but it also obviously.
1: Well, actually, I I got referred to that just yesterday or the day before. I I my piece that I that I wrote most recently was about a female, but it was about a female horse. And this was a horse named Reckless that served with the marines in the korean war oh wow and so apparently a book was written about her back in the 50s right after the war and so (laughs) i clicked on the link and it did it took me right to that archives and i was like what's this (laughs) i know isn't it great though i mean i love the idea of being able to access
0: stuff that otherwise we would not have access to you know even if I walked into the the public library I wouldn't have been able to access it because it's no longer there Right, right so I love the way that the internet sort of equalizes access to information especially for something like our show and what we do here. And then we regurgitate it to people who don't have the time to read an entire (laughs) biography on archive.org. Save, save, save people time. So, you know, we're talking about your writing. I'd actually like to pivot and talk about one of the women that you've written about is actually somebody that we spoke about on our first season. I um, have been fascinated with this woman for years and that's Irina Sendler. Uh, What was the name of that book that you did about her? It's called Irina's Children. Yes. Irena's Children. And it's an adapt- adaptation, right?
1: Right, right. So that, yeah. So I adapted that's that book from the adult manuscript. And I had written about her on my blog... Six months before, this project came along. So, as soon as this project came along, I was like, oh, I know all about her. Yes.
0: Um, and I had known about her from teaching the Holocaust to eighth grade English students. So, I had decided early on that in the first season, I wanted to cover her story. And so, we did. I think it was episode 17 that I talked about Arena. And what drew you initially when you decided to write about her on your blog? What drew you to Irina's story?
1: Irina, I I don't know if she might be one in a billion people Mm. in what she did. Um, What drew me was that she risked her life Every single day, practically. I mean, I don't know how many days a week she went into the Warsaw Ghetto, got past those uh, Nazi guards. Yep. But it was, I mean, she, <laughs> I can't even talk about her. She she basically was willing to put her life on the line. And and. And initially, it was it was to bring medicine and food. Yes, yes. Yeah, she was
0: bringing supplies and food. Um, she was working at the time, am I right? Uh, she was like a city worker, correct. right? Correct, correct. And it was, uh, her, she became part of the resistance, the underground resistance, and was bringing in supplies along with a couple other women, right?
1: Right. Actually, actually, she... Had quite a network of of many women and men. Um, she's it's attributed to her that she saved something like twenty five hundred children. Children, um, but she certainly had a lot of help, and yes. her network was part of her genius. I mean, there's so many things about Irina, and. It's coincidentally, I just watched The Zookeeper's Wife um, last night. And so it brought all that back to me. That was the woman who who hid Jews in the Warsaw Zoo with her husband. And Irina actually was hidden in there for a time. Mm, I did not know that. Yeah, so she—it's not in the movie, and I don't know if it's in the book, but I— but she was, and that was after she was arrested and and free. I mean, besides besides Irina's amazing selflessness, the story is just too incredible for words that she would be captured, yes, and tortured basically. I mean not basically she was tortured. Yeah, she didn't she have an uh, I'm trying to remember it's been 3 years since I did that. Didn't she have a permanent injury? She did. She I forget if they beat her legs. Yeah. I think she like was that. beaten on her legs and then her job at least at one point in the prison was to wash clothes or sheets or clothing i don't know what she was washing but she was standing over a sink on a broken leg yeah um working probably all hours of the day and so she did have a a permanent injury um but the fact that she then never revealed Mm. names under torture i i I can't even imagine that. I'd be okay. I'll tell you everything. I know. (laughs) They slapped my hand. I can't take pain. But um, she then, it's on the day when she is going to her execution that she is rescued at the very last minute. Uh, Her followers had bribed yeah bribed the guards a right? german a nazi guard so when they they would open they she was in this waiting room with the other women who were being shot that day and they would open the door and call your name and you would walk out and when it was her turn a different door opened on the other side of the room and they called her name and she walked out and she didn't even understand what was going on and the guard just kind of sh- just shoved her and said get out of here get out of here oh my god and I, she, I don't think i ever knew that part of it she couldn't at that point she was so well she was starving and she was mm. so injured she could hardly walk yeah um she had I mean, she was in terrible physical condition and me- a mental condition, too. I mean, that kind of, you know, not getting proper nutrition plus torture. I mean, that can do a lot of crazy things to your mind. So, but she made her way to a, like a corner drugstore. And thank God the people there took her in. Um, so, talk about a story i mean on the one hand there's there's me who admires someone who's selfless and brave and on the other hand there's me who's a storyteller yeah and this it's like it's better than fiction yeah you could not make this up
0: yeah i i love her story for that, those same reasons i will say that in my research i i did discover something that I thought was actually really interesting. And so I want to ask you about how you talk about the complexity of people, because one of the things I discovered was that she was this hero to so many people and saved all of these children. Like you talked about 12, um, 2,500 children, but she, to her own children was very cold and distant and aloof. And they just never really thought of her as a good mother. And I thought, wow, like, that's something you wouldn't expect from this person that you are, you know, seeing as this like selfless hero. And I find that sometimes I want to gloss over those parts of the person's life that I'm talking about. And because I'm like worried that it will tarnish their reputation or in some way diminish their achievements or impact. But at the same time, I, one of the things that we seek to do on the show is portray women as complex um, I think we have this tendency to martyr women. Uh, and, and in doing so, we take away their complexity. You know, if if Irina is only a hero, then how would I ever be able to connect or, you know, find a way that she's also human? So, how do you do that in your writing? How do you tackle that kind of complexity? Well,
1: I think that is an excellent point to discuss because luckily with children's literature – just even in the last 10, 15, definitely in the years, the the body of work that's being published in nonfiction is has moved dramatically to where we can tell the truth about people yeah and um, I think that is definitely necessary and essential because you are perfectly right. One of the things that I, when I talk about the women in my books that it always comes down to is these women were not special people. Mm -hmm. These were ordinary people. I mean, I just got done saying Irina was special, (laughs) but, (laughs) but you know, it's like, it's minute to minute how you react and engage with what's happening around you. And none of these women were born courageous and selfless. Right? They, it, it, they were called to it in the moment. But back to the idea of them not being perfect. None of us are perfect. And we cannot, if we think these wonderful women were perfect, we cannot as- aspire to be like them. Yes, I think
0: that's one of the things I come across is that when you put someone on a pedestal, th- that is a barrier. It-, it means that that person is not attainable. I can't be as good as that person. And I don't think that's what what they would have wanted.
1: No. Well, and to make this very personal, okay, my name is Mary and I grew up Roman Catholic and the Virgin Mary was held up to me as the ideal woman. And that right there, <laughs> that right there, you know, that you know Come on, that, Mary, you weren't an you weren't an impregnated virginal goddess. <laughs> that that was I mean, that was something to grow out of i mean that i'm i i like that's another day's topic but i think it it's a perfect example of of what you're talking about and the other thing that i have known and discovered in researching women is that often actually women who have done a lot for others or for a cause do not tend to be good mothers yeah
0: i'm finding that to be true
1: in a lot Um, of my research dorothy day is a perfect example of that now now she is one who's being canonized i think well maybe not as a saint but she was was not a good mother and number one i i i don't really even think I mean there are a lot of people who aren't good mothers who don't do anything <laughs> that can be that we can look to and aspire to but also you know there is a cost yes to some causes there are directions that a woman may choose in her life and there may be a huge cost to that yeah. and one of them I'll just bring up um Catherine Lois, who is the current who is the subject of my next book, she was a photographer during the Vietnam War. And she was a war photographer for 20, 25 years. She never married. She never had a family. And because of the type of work she chose to do, those types of things um, just didn't fit into her life. Yeah. So um, so I think it's very complex. And the whole idea of what a good mother is, is another woman's issue that we could talk oh. forever we, about. We end
0: up talking a lot about mothering and motherhood on our show. Um, I was a foster mother, my co-host is a mother of a now almost teen boy, which is wild, Um, and then I am estranged from my own mother, and so is her husband. Her husband's estranged from her own from his mother. And then she has a pretty complex relationship with her mother. So we talk we end up talking a lot about mothering and motherhood and the expectations of women versus the expectations of men and fatherhood. Because we often don't have these kinds of conversations that we're having right now. Who cares if if you know Sugihara was a good father? he saved a lot of people's lives. Right,
1: right, 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 right. No one's looking at these men from history and saying, oh, well, they weren't a good father. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: clearly Thomas Jefferson sucked ass at being a father, but nobody talks about that.
1: Oh, and here's the sad thing, Um, because you're you're a different generation than me. I'm going to say it right out. I'm over 60. And what is so painful to me is that some of these issues about the about men and women have not changed. I mean I when I was a young woman, the big question was, could you be a mother and have a job? Could you do both? <laughs> yeah and now women, a lot of women have jobs and children, but there's an underlying, Structure of culture and thought that is still stuck on how that should work out and what that means, and I, I'm not even finding words for it. But the fact that in the year 2021, um, well, yeah, the pandemic destroyed women's careers,
0: right? Because it became the job of the woman in a heterosexual cis pairing to stay home and take care of those children despite her career. And that that saddened me greatly. I I no longer identify as a woman, but obviously I was raised in a culture in a society that sees me as a woman, and of course there's a lot of my story that's wrapped up in in womanhood. Um and, you know, <sighs> I found it so hard to see all of these think pieces being written about the amount of women who have just permanently left the workforce. Like that feels like a huge step back.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: I mean, I feel like we're 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 having that similar thing that happened during World War II when all the men were away and all the women got great
1: jobs. And then the men
0: came back and all the women lost those jobs.
1: Well, the other thing, (laughs) the other thing, too, is that so many of the women who had to work, the women, I'm not just talking about nurses and people, doctors on the front lines in that way. I'm talking about people in service jobs that were required to go to work and how many of them were low paid women. And it's the same whenever you talk about women and Job. Women have always worked, and poor women have always, always worked. worked outside the home. I mean, many of them have worked. So, yeah, the issue is very complex. But the people, the the women who have had to work through this pandemic at, in low-paying jobs where they worked with the public, um, have have really really suffered. I mean,
0: And they unfairly. carried the nation on their backs. Right. And that's unfair. My co-host is one of them, you know, works as a server and at one of the few restaurants that stayed very busy the entire time because they were a great takeout option. And um, when they decided to quote unquote, cut the fat and keep just essential personnel working in their restaurant, that included her. And so she was just working constantly and her child was at home It was hard. I mean, luckily, she has a very supportive spouse, but not everybody does. So we kind of went off the
1: tracks a little bit.
0: Um, I actually do want to talk about your newest book. Tell me
1: how to say her name again. Well, I have been practicing this, and I don't know if I have it right yet, because I do not speak French. Oh my God, I'm so bad at it. (laughs) I do not
0: speak French. Have you ever listened to any of our episodes where I talk about a French person? No. (laughs) Don't. It's such an embarrassment.
1: (laughs) Well, I have been practicing this now for the longest time when I was researching and writing. I wasn't even worried about how to say her name. Yeah, Catherine Leroy. (laughs) Yes, right. Catherine Leroy. Um,
0: But it didn't even occur to me that her name was not pronounced Catherine Leroy until you said it. And I was like, I thought you were talking about the next book beyond this one. And I was like, oh, that, who? I wonder who that is. And then as soon as you talked about Vietnam photojournalists, I was like, oh, <laughs>
1: I do not know how to say this person's name. <laughs> so I'm probably not the one to learn how to say it. But I was on a panel last week where there were other people who knew Catherine or wrote about Catherine. So I was listening very carefully and it seems to me that the way they say her name is Catherine Loi.
0: Catherine Loi. Okay, I'm going to do my best. (laughs) So that's one of my next questions is actually about your next book, which comes out in February, right? Correct. February of 2022. Um, It's called Close Up on War. That's a final title, I assume. Yes. So you talk about the French photojournalist Katrine Lawa, (laughs) who um, I thought took some of the most incredible photos of the Vietnam War and like literally in the action of it. um, They were featured in Time, Look, Life magazine, The New York Times. But her name kind of fell off the radar, as you talked about in your book. Um, Why do you think
1: people forgot about Katrine Lawa? Because she was a woman. The short answer. Um, like I said, she worked on the front lines of combat for at least twenty years, and when she decided she'd had enough and went moved over to the civilian side, yeah. of, um, she she couldn't get jobs. She, they she couldn't not- get a job like just taking photos, right? I mean, she could have she could have maybe taken portraits of of. Hollywood stars or something like that, but she could not get assignments to take news photo, photo, (laughs) news
0: photographs. Thank
1: you. Um, She did not get assignments. Men got assignments and she did not. She could not. This is so sad, but she basically, oh, this is a sad story. She could not get assignments. She could barely support herself. Really?
0: I always wonder about that when we talk about some of the people we talk about because we'll have all of this information about the time in which they're active and then very little information about when they're inactive. And I always wonder what happens in that inactive time. Are they you know, just, you know, working as a grocery store like clerk? Are they doing what they love? Like I don't know because we just don't get to know that information.
1: What one of the things about Katrine was that she loved fashion. And that's one of the fun things about my book that I think teens will relate to is she's like talking about you know the The dresses the bullets and then she's saying mom send me my blue silk dress yeah and my (laughs) bikini (laughs) yeah but so near the end of her life she died she died of um cancer um probably from smoking all those years i don't know or maybe from effects of
0: vietnam yeah I would say that maybe both, or I would say that all that time she spent in, in Vietnam can't right. have been good.
1: Right, no, no, definitely. And um, she had a business, she was trying to make money selling um, high-end purses and clothing. Like, I see. Like getting them from France and and selling them. One thing she did that after her, after her combat career was they, she went and did some photo shoots in Japan, fashion photo shoots, the amazing fashion photo shoots in Ooh, Japan. I would have loved to see that. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to Google that. She, and, and so she, she did. And here's another thing she did. One, what one comment that she made somewhere along the way was that one of her favorite stories that she did for the news was about the Mohawk uh, men who were the iron workers that built the buildings in the '60s in the, in like New York and Chicago. Mm. Um, and and she. She photographed them, and that was one of her favorite assignments. So
0: we've talked a little bit about her, but, um, you know, on the show, normally what we do is we tell a person's story from, like, start to finish. And I know, obviously, you don't want to tell her entire story because that's what your book is about. But tell us a little bit about her story. Who was she? When was she born? What did she do? So that our listeners have an idea of what what it is you were writing about with Katrine.
1: Well, A very interesting thing is that she was French and she was born in 1945 in France when the Allies were bombing France. There was a huge bombing raid near where her parents lived on the night she was born. Wow. So she was like meant for war. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And and she was... um, she was sick as a child and she was tiny. I mean she was very tiny even as an adult. I know 49 410. Well, she she was she under was, 5 feet, wasn't she? Well, her thing was in her combat boots. She was 5 foot and weighed 100 pounds with all her combat gear and boots. <laughs> so she was under she was a couple inches under 5 foot, at least an inch and and very tiny yeah, young woman. Yeah, she looked woman. very tiny. So she was a tiny child, and she had um, some kind of respiratory illness. And back then, they would send children to the Swiss Alps. For respite, for, you know, that the Swiss Alps were the place where people went with consumption because the air, you know, so she, as a child got sent off by herself several times to stay for months in, in in the Swiss Alps away from her parents. She was an only child Well, she had a step brother. I think that was much, much older, but um, so she started out kind of at a disadvantage and then she was attracted to photography out of as in her like pre-teens. Mm. And then she liked to say, I was a bad element. I got kicked out of six schools in six years. <gasps> so... I love I love a good rebel. <laughs> yeah. And so she... so she, And she, she, like, I don't really know their school system over there, but if it were here, you'd say she didn't graduate from high school. She dropped out and um, started just trying to do different things. At one point, she was trying to start a... Parachuting. What do you call parachuting? Skydiving. A skydiving um, school or something. She learned to skydive because she was dating a guy who was a skydiver and she wanted to impress him. So she actually became an excellent... She had 80... When she went to Vietnam, she had 84 um, dives, skydives. And I forget, maybe half of them were the dives where you're free Free falling for long distance before your chute even opens. And so one of the things that happened was that Catherine was included in the one and only airdrop parachute drop in the Vietnam war.
0: Yeah. That's a very exciting scene in the book. When she jumps out of the plane with these soldiers and they're being shot at as they're coming down in the air. That's an incredibly tense scene.
1: (laughs) And there were rumors that she slept with someone to get to do that, that... Is so untrue. No, she was the only photographer, except for army photographers, who made that jump. And she was more well qualified. She had more jumps than the soldiers, some of them, that were jumping. And yet, th- her success had to be torn down.
0: Mm-hmm. It had to be diminished. Because, you know, a woman could never be more qualified. That would just be absurd, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It felt very much like um, personal jealousy, like professional jealousy, mixed in with a whole lot of misogyny.
1: Well, the, you know what's really—I guess it's—I guess it's just to be accepted. But of course, when she went to Vietnam, she came up against the American military misogyny. Yes, <laughs> but then the news corps turned on her. That is what is really sad.
0: When did that happen? And, and and what was the reason for that? Actually, we should probably back up. So how old is she when she... So she does the skydiving stuff. She drops out of school. She does the skydiving. And then how does she become a war journalist? Okay, so... Because, yeah. like, I, I guess... What year did she go to Vietnam? Was it 65? 66.
1: 66. So she's 21. She's 21. Okay. So she decided that she wanted to be a combat photographer. She had read this French news pictorial magazine as a young person and there were photographs of um, the French fighting in Vietnam Um, and all all other photographs that, that really caught her attention. And so she decided she wanted to become a photographer and she said the biggest story was Vietnam. So at... Uh, she started working um, a job that she hated at a at a like as a clerical type job and just saved all her money to buy a camera and a plane ticket. <laughs> and then she just went. And then she just went. She had it's wild like two hundred bucks in her pocket and she flew to Vietnam. She landed first in um, Laos and there she started practicing with the camera. <laughs> Yeah, she'd like never really taken photos. No, she hadn't. She learned on the job. And what's incredible is that it was less than a year that she was there that her photographs were seen around the world. Yeah, they started to get picked up by the AP, right? Right, right. So so
0: you said, so she spends all this time in Vietnam. She takes all these photos. She gets an incredible amount of coverage because she does do extremely dangerous and risky things to get the shot um, and is embedded with troops the entire time. So what makes the news corps turn on her? It seems like that would be the kind of person they would want to continue having access to.
1: Well, um, almost immediately when which like she won a major award for pho- news photography award, her f- with pictures she took in her first or eight a year or eighteen months, and it was like as soon as she started succeeding, that's when people turned on her. Hmm. There, people attributed a lot of her photographs to luck, which was insane. Pretty much everyone who knows anything about the press corps in Vietnam will agree that. She, Katrine Lois spent more time in the field in combat than anyone
0: yeah and it seems like okay well luck would happen once or twice right not continuously (laughs) that's
1: how luck works yeah is
0: once in a lifetime yeah it's not like she won for that one photo or or whatever that one set of photos but her photos kept being published (laughs) so clearly clearly she had done something that wasn't about luck
1: right she um wasn't the most technically skilled Mm. photographer but she kind of if you look at her pictures her photographs there are eyes in every almost every one of them i mean some of them are like bombs or napalm dropping on the forest or whatever but she got close to the soldiers they were her age yes she I, identified with them and she got close to them and she 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 wanted she knew she she said if i don't feel something why take the picture yeah
0: i i thought it was interesting when she was talking about the camaraderie that she had with the soldiers particularly as the war went on and her perception of why the Americans were there started to shift, which you kind of touched on in the book um, that you know she was seeing a lot of violence. Uh, so, I guess that closeness—I I always kind of wondered if she was able to maintain because she talked about objectivity versus subjectivity. You know, at some point she lost a little bit of her objectivity because i think she didn't agree with what they were doing
1: uh, yeah i i can't i can't know really what was going on in her mind but i think that at the point where you're involved in the middle of c- combat and you're taking a picture there's really not going to be much objectivity mm. <laughs> I mean, unless I, yeah, I can't imagine it. She, her her ideas about the war did change because she sort of she she thought it was fine when she first went, and then she realized it wasn't. But you know what? A lot of the soldiers with her were realizing the same thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: It it felt very much like I actually thought that the book and her story did the same thing, which is that like you know, you told the story of the Vietnam through what what Catherine was, or sorry, Katrine, was experiencing, which I thought was a really smart move because one of the things I had written in my notes to talk about was the fact that, like, our American education system simply does not teach about the Vietnam War. I remember when I was in high school, distinctly remember, when we were in U.S. history, our teacher saying, we might get to the Vietnam War this year. And then we didn't. I think we watched, like, Forrest Gump. <laughs> and that was our education about the Vietnam War. And so, I learned more in your book about the Vietnam War than I have in 18 years of public education as a student.
1: Thank you. And Thank you. I-, <laughs> I I take that to heart because, to be honest, when I first decided to write this book and about Katrine, I, I had no intention of writing about the vietnam war and that's just how silly i was i wanted to tell her story right but you and, can't tell her story if oh, you don't tell the story of the war believe me i have learned way more about vietnam uh, that i'm glad i know yes but that i was i i i don't think hardly any people know i mean there's it has to be a few maybe, I don't know, a generation or two back in it before it really is history and you can talk about it in an objective manner. I, I don't know, but I had to do a lot of research on the Vietnam War, and it was extremely painful. And this book came back to me from my editor at least six times times because it was very difficult to talk to write about something as complex as the Vietnam War and to make it succinct enough to fit in this book yeah I, I I think that that's a a
0: struggle I mean Because your work, I mean, I teach, you know, high school students every single day, and not a single one of them knows anything about the Vietnam War. Um, And I don't. And, And that's the thing is that like a lot of their teachers are my age or a little older, and they never got taught about the Vietnam War. And so it's just not something they prioritize teaching about. And as a young adult, I became really pissed off about the fact that I didn't know anything about Vietnam because it seemed to me that that's what we were doing when I was 19 was entering into a war on a false premise and disrupting an entire country's ecosystem (laughs) to um, enact our own political agenda. And we hadn't learned any lessons from it because we hadn't been taught them. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so I appreciate your book because I think that, you know, Any amount of information on the Vietnam War that gets into the heads of youths is a good amount. And I think also it's, to me, the book really read well as an adult too, um, because I don't know a lot and I needed that. I needed a little, (laughs) a little brisk informational dump so I could understand even what was happening. I I just know like basics of the Vietnam War. Right.
1: Yeah. I think probably most people
0: um I actually wanted to talk a little bit about something that you pointed out in the book uh I I really appreciated and admired that you frequently talked about some of the egregious missteps that the US government and military made during the war um right now I'm I'm gonna make a little jump here right now we're hearing a lot in about state legislatures who are trying to do pushback on teaching critical race theory in schools um, that is teaching history with race in mind. And I think a lot of that pushback comes from a place of defensiveness in America, where we don't really want to take a look and examine the ways in which we participate in and allow violence and oppression to occur, Um, and especially towards black people, people of color, and other marginalized people. And I think that there's a similar problem when it comes to the Vietnam War. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't teach it, is because... You would have to also take a look at how American soldiers, leaders, and et cetera, committed really gruesome acts of violence and perpetuated terrible racism, which you touch on a little bit in the book. And I thought it was um, interesting that you included some of those pictures, that moment when they're on that, she'd been on days and days of that long march with those soldiers who were clearly at that point irritated and like, irritated because it was pointless. They hadn't had any action, and it just seemed like they were going through the torture of the jungle.
1: (laughs) And they had had people killed. Yeah, many. um, Hundreds, right, at that point? Their lieutenant had been killed, and so they were in a very bad mood.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they were in a very bad place, and um, I won't necessarily go into the specifics, but a moment happens where they find... A quote unquote enemy in a pond, and these soldiers take it upon themselves to be very violent. And Katrine was taking these photos as it was happening, and everybody's allowing the photos to be taken because they didn't even like they weren't even conscious, it seems, at that moment of how far they were taking it. And I was wondering a little bit about how you made the decision to include those photos in the book and if you had any pushback doing that
1: um I, I had no pushback, and I absolutely knew as soon as I saw the photos that they needed to be included. Um, one of the things that I learned in research in the research for this book was that the military had a file on American atrocities. This file, was not to investigate or bring any kind of change change or justice. This file was so that they would have the facts if something got out in the media. Yeah. So the atrocities were numerous. I do want to say, I think, it's very... This is a very touchy issue Mm -hmm. because there were some atrocities that were horrendous and people should have been punished. And there were a lot of soldiers in Vietnam who did not commit any atrocities. Mm -hmm. But they were trained from the very beginning to look at the Vietnamese, at the Vietnamese of the Vietnamese enemy as inhuman from the very first day they went into basic yes. training. They were told, call them this name. Yeah, ra- they not epithets. human. And, um, they were basically brainwashed. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's absolutely horrendous. The atrocities that happened, And I also think that as a nation, as a people, we need to think about what we're doing when we take an 18-year-old boy and send him into a situation like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the pitfalls of not teaching about the vietnam war is we don't learn the lessons from it right you know it it is it is a situation that happened and terrible things happened on many levels but we don't talk about it enough to learn from it in order to
1: well look at this. i mean the whole pictures from iraq mhm the torture Pictures Abu Ghraib, and then yes, and then the debate that was still going on about whether torture was acceptable was acceptable. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and and it seems like we're just still not ever really talking about it in a way that is meaningful and would enact any change. So uh, that, to me, is one of those lessons to circle back to what we talked about at the beginning, where we are learning. That we never learned. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one of my last questions for you is, uh, I I, I wonder if there were any parts of Katrine's story that you had to leave out of your book.
1: Uh, I had to leave out the smoking. I was not allowed to put in the smoking and the drinking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, she swore like a sailor, right? Yeah,
1: and and they made, yes, and they, they, okay, so this... I'm 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 just gonna say my piece here. I'm writing a book about bodies getting blown away. Yeah. And I am not allowed to use some bad words.
0: That's wild.
1: I mean it's not you know, my editor doesn't necessarily agree with that, but he said the libraries will not buy them if they have cuss words in them. And if you look at the banned books list, you will see that in many libraries across the country, a cuss word is enough to get the book taken out. Yeah, um, that would wipe out
0: half of my collection <laughs> if that were the
1: metric. Sounds that like we you were have using. a great
0: collection. I absolutely do. You know, you know how I know because I have raised circulation statistics by 180%. Wow, congratulations. I know, because I'm putting in books that people want to read. Imagine that. And they happen to contain language of material that is realistic to what teens are saying and doing. Right. And, you know, that's just how it is. And I I think everybody has the right to make an individual choice of what they're okay with and not okay with. Um, But they don't have that right to extend it upon everyone else. (laughs) So, But I understand why a publisher would be like, I want you to sell books. You're right. going to sell books if you right. don't put in these words.
1: I, this in other books, I've just taken them out completely. In this book, in some cases, if they're direct quotes, I I was able to keep them in by just taking out some of the letters.
0: Yeah, she she said the f word a lot, right? She said all the words <laughs> a lot. She's great. If you, I know you haven't listened much to our show, but if you have listened to any of it, you know we swear.
1: (laughs) Yes, I, uh, I frequently, (laughs)
0: loudly, and proudly, (laughs) because it's part of who we are. That's, uh, you know, that was actually a feedback we got um, during our first season. Was I just, I like your show. I just wish you wouldn't swear so much. And I was like, well, that's too fucking bad. (laughs) just because that's just not who we are not your audience and well and it's like if if that's the thing that stops you from listening then okay that's cool for you but like we're not going to change who we are um you know as when i go to work do i swear at work no because that's my that's my job and i expect the students to also change their speech patterns to come to school, right? It's it's kind of like I'm modeling the behavior I want them to, to, to do. Uh, but I let them know frequently and often that this isn't how I talk when I'm at home. It's not how I talk when I'm with my friends. And I, and I do that in order to like reinforce to them that like I have to change my behavior when I'm at school, because that's what's acceptable and that's what our norm is. When I'm outside of school, I get to do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> I get to talk like how I want. <laughs> right. And I think that that uh, has you know helped us maintain an authenticity on our show. And I I want to say that I think that that's what made for me. That's what made Katrine feel like an authentic person was knowing that she learned English from American soldiers who swore a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So her vocabulary was very rich.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. All right,
0: I have a couple other questions for you. Uh, What's next for you? Are you researching anyone right now that you're working on after
1: Katrine's story? I have a couple ideas, but at this point, they're just ideas. I'm currently most immersed in a novel that i'm writing so a novel right i i had a novel published almost 20 years ago and i have always wanted to write fiction but once i got going on these women i kind of got on a train that wouldn't stop
0: (laughs) (laughs) and so now you're writing a novel what's that like for you writing fiction
1: i love it i absolutely love it it's very hard because i've always been a I, I mean, I was a broadcast journalist, and I wrote for a newspaper, and then I wrote about these nonfiction—I wrote all these true stories about women. And it's writing a novel is very different, and it, I've had to educate myself a lot and work very hard. I've written—I won't tell you how many novels that never really, you know— got to any point where they were good enough to be published. Yes, same. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll just keep toiling away at it. Yeah, that's all you can do. (laughs) Is it for adults or young adults? It's for young adults. Awesome. I'm putting a few swear words in.
0: You can put a lot of stuff in there. You can, there. I don't think I've read a YA book that didn't have some kind of sex scene in it for a long time. <laughs> so uh, where can people find you if they want to look you up and read your stuff and see your social media? Where can they find you?
1: Well, my website is my name, Mary Cronk Farrell. That's C-R-O-N-K-F as in Frank, A-R-R-E-L-L. Dot com and on my website um is my email and all my social media and i'm very easy to get in touch with so i want to just thank you again for coming in and talking with us today
0: about your books and in our humble home studio <laughs> to talk about women's history and your books and so much more. I want to remind our listeners that you can pick up Mary Crock Farrell's books at your local independent bookstore, please. Please. If you're here in Spokane, that's the Wishing Tree books and aunties and giant nerd books. We've got some great ones here. If you're elsewhere, buy it from your local store. Please don't buy it from Amazon.
1: <laughs> please, please, please
0: don't buy it from Amazon. But if you're gonna not, I mean, buy it. If you're, I'd rather have you buy it than not buy it. But. <laughs> um, her newest book, which is called Close Up on War, the story of pioneering photojournalist Katrine Leroy, or Leroy, Leroy? Leroy. In Vietnam, <laughs> will be out in February 2022, but you can pre-order it now. Yes, it is
1: available for pre-order now.
0: Yeah, so put it on your lists. If you're a librarian, put it on your list. I read it, and it's great.
1: Okay, so can I make a little offer here? Sure. Okay, so I'm, I've been thinking about, um trying to reward people who pre-order the book. Mm. And this is a wonderful book for book groups, both for teens and adults. And so maybe if anyone hears about it on this show and they pre-order the book, I would do a visit, a Skype or Zoom visit to their book club. Alright, so there you go,
0: listeners. If you decide you want to do a book club on Mary Cronk Farrell's newest book as it comes out in February, you can pre-order it now, and we can have, like, an IDK Her Book Club. Yeah. So, let us know on Instagram if that's something you're going to do, um, or email us, or catch us on Facebook, as you all know. We are at IDK Her Podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank our editor, Lucas McIntyre, for his work on our episode today and all other episodes. And we also want to thank our fucking wonderful Jennifer Finch for our theme music, who has generously provided it for us. And also our listeners for staying with us. And make sure, if you haven't done so already, you check us out on Patreon and subscribe. Buy our merch on TeePublic. And thank you for listening. And thank you, Mary, for being
1: here. Thank you so much for having me. This was was a really um, enjoyable conversation. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Uh, We will talk to
1: you all later. Goodbye. Bye.